everybody. Welcome to the Voxology Podcast. My name is Mike. This is my friend Tim. Hi. <laughs> yep, that was it. That is that is my friend Tim. Absolutely. And um, we're so we're so glad to be a part of your day. However, it is whether you're trying to fall asleep, in which you know our voices will fade out in thirty seconds, or you're trying to exercise, good for you, or you're driving. Keep your eyes focused on the road. Um, but we're we're so honored. Did we do like one episode? We did like one minute of like theological ASMR. We oh like we should like or the, we did we, no we did we did oh, one time oh we, we did real close to the microphones just yeah. in case someone's driving right now and they like Jesus Jesus loves you <laughs> um so that'll be the last time we do that probably we got a couple <laughs> things we we got first of all we got a packed episode all right yeah guys dog on it you know people coast in December man we're just getting started. I've got right. so I've got I've got some thank yous to thank. I've got an email to read and we have an interview to conduct. So, first, full the thank yous. All day long. So, I want to thank Shannon who uh, showed up on tithe.ly as someone who's uh, <laughs> supporting the podcast. I want to thank Melinda and Mike and then, and then I don't know how to pronounce this name. It's spelled T-S-I-N-I-A. So, Sinia is my best guess. Sinia? Tisnia? I don't know. Please tell us how to pronounce it because we want to thank you properly. But thank you. Even if, or if, even if we're mispronouncing your name, and by we, I mean me. Um, so, so, I am so grateful um, also, there are those of you who, and, and I'm not making this up, there are those of you who have inquired about your in giving. Yes, that is something that uh, we say yes to. And um, if you need our tax ID stuff, just drop us a line at hello at voxpodcast.com. We can get you our tax ID. But some of you do the whole year in planning. And so thank you for all of it. Just all of it. Thank you. All of it. Um, we have uh, an email that came in that just kind of a heartbreaker. And I don't know that we have good answers, uh, but we wanted to honor the emailer and honor the question that's being asked. Um, this is regarding the, um, the, the Club Q shooting that we mentioned uh, last episode or the episode before. Um, uh, he begins, hey, Seth, et al. Great use of et al, by the way. Um, and, and Seth... The only name, really, that needs to be mentioned. Um, he, he says something nice about us, and then he says, I'm really struggling here. As a gay Christian, I don't know how to maintain community with non-affirming folks in light of all the violence that we, the gay community, endure. Five people were just murdered in Colorado Springs, and the only people who have said anything to me are my, quote, progressive friends. My, quote, conservative friends that I have known for over a decade stay silent while my queer brothers and sisters mourn the loss of five innocents and continue to live in fear. They are quick to post, um, his uh, conservative friends, I'm assuming, they're, uh, they're quick to post about racial injustice, which is fantastic, but they turn a blind eye to the sufferings of queer people. I can't help but see the common denominator in the violence we experience 
and the silence we receive to be their non-affirming theology. If we judge a theology by its fruit, uh, is this not rotten to its core? Even folks like Preston Sprinkle and those who agree with his ideas are silent, and so I'm forced to believe that their methods are simply a bait and switch to get us to live a lifestyle that is contrary to our nature. I'm really trying to find the Jesus way. I'm trying to be patient and follow Jesus with people who think differently than I do, but this is just so hard. I was a pastor and needed to leave my church because I came out, quote, in parentheses, I wasn't even affirming yet. My fiance's best friend committed suicide because of the homophobic theology and practices of his church. My fiance and I are treated as, quote, friends by conservative family. As a teacher, um, I'm assuming a school teacher, I have parents sending me emails that they're uncomfortable with me teaching their children, and all the while my queer brothers and sisters are being abused by my brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't know what to do here. I don't want to be exclusionary, but I don't know how to have communion with people who stay silent in the face of injustice and hold theologies that are killing people. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. And I emailed him back and, and just said, I, I don't know that I have a, or that we have much to say on something like this. Be, at least for me, um, I have no, nothing in my background that could cause me to relate to what you must be feeling. That fear, that exclusion, I've never felt those things. Um, you know, that marginalization, yeah. that hostility, I've never felt those things. So I, I feel so hesitant to just sort of start talking about this. And, and I, I have no doubt I would feel very similarly in your shoes. Yeah, for sure. So, Man, I don't know. I mean, my heart breaks. I This conversation... You know, to this listener too, just being in the position where you're always being asked to be the more loving mm -hmm. person mm -hmm. in every scenario. I can't imagine how just absolutely exhausting in, in every way, physically, spiritually, emotionally exhausting that much must be to constantly be the one that has to be like, well, I'm the one that's the one that has to be accepted. The bigger person, yeah. Yeah, and it's the choice of the other people whether or not I can be a part of the conversation or a part of the family or a part of whatever. And yeah. I, I'm so sorry. That is such a huge thing. And I don't I don't know what the answer is either. I, I can't... It feels more Christ-like to me, and maybe I'll get in trouble for saying this, but I'm speaking off the top of my head, but yeah, it feels much more Christ-like to me what this person is talking about than the other mm -hmm. side, like the more uh, condescending side of the conversation. Yeah, yeah. When I think of loving your enemy, it's more than just like loving people that are, you know, physically, but that is part of this Yeah. Uh, conversation, but also people who are so blinded by their like hatred or they're pushing out of the other 
that this community has to constantly be the ones that are putting aside things and figuring out how to love through that. And that, like, again, can't imagine how exhausting that is, but that position feels so much more Christ-like to me than the one that just pushes to exclude or to compartmentalize or whatever. I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know there will ever, I don't know if there is an answer. I don't know that Mm. there is a way to navigate this stuff perfectly because we find ways, I mean, the the conversation we're about to have in the interview, we find ways to hold power over other people all the time. And that Mm. just seems to be a fallen MO of ours. Yeah. I think it's really good. I think the reason I wanted to read it was because it's such a tender, poignant expression of a very real tension that I've never had to walk in. Um, And it it raises, I think, really profound questions about how a community fits together. You know, it's it's easy. What's the flesh and blood questions instead of just like, what's the rules here? What are the rules? Who's in, who's out, and why? Where do we draw the lines? This is like, no, this is flesh and blood. This is me. This is me being seen, me being heard. Yep. And and what does it mean to be a centered, you know, a centered set community when when you're not agreeing on um, whether or not there's systemic racism or whether or not, you know, gay marriage can be affirmed or not affirmed or whatever? Um, are yeah. there points where you, uh, you have to cut yourself off? And, and we would say, well, of course, there are points. Um, yeah. the, the thing that, the thing that I, I was really thinking about when I, when I first got the email was, what, what do all these people have in common? Is it just the non-affirming theology? And uh, the guy we're going to interview, um, I, I, I really... I like really want you guys to listen to this. <laughs> um, and, and, and he has a, he has a couple of, of chapters in his book that we don't get to in the interview just for sake of time, but about evangelicals and shame and evangelicals and disgust. And why, why is this, is this um, purity culture, um, even though it's, you know, and he talks about the ex-gay, sort of reparative therapy movement. And I mean, there's some, there's other things going on because I want to hold out the possibility that there have to be communities where, and it also depends on what do you mean by non-affirming, right? If non-affirming means, um, I don't believe same sex gendered or same sex, uh, or same, yeah, same sex gender, same sex genital, erotic relationships hello are god's ideal okay that's the conversation we can have or the thought that says um uh gays are going to burn in hell and um you know they're rejecting jesus and should be damned straight away like there seems to be a continuum of what non-affirming is i i don't i mean it seems that way it does. Um, you know, it's interesting. One of the questions I wanted to ask in the interview that you're about to listen to um, had to do with um, when I was looking at segment things for this week that 
controversy going on with that Thomas Accord guy that um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. was a president of that Christian school or whatever. And he had a, and he's also on a podcast with our buddy Stephen Wolf that has come up the last however many weeks, the author of that Case for Christian Nationalism book that's selling like hotcakes, um, who is also connected to, he's a, what was it, a <laughs> student or a whatever of Albert Moeller. Yeah. Um, the, the the net just, the, the web just continues to kind of go out. But what I thought was interesting, and it kind of, I think, in some ways connects to this, is that the stuff that the Accord guy was doing, so he got um, he's he got exposed for having an alternate alias on Twitter that was doing all this racist, misogynist, anti-Semitic, yeah. like tweets, really, gnarly. like just going bananas, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. but he's the president of this like Christian school or whatever, and uh, and he's on this podcast with the Wolf guy that's about nationalism and Christianity and whatever, and this need. It's it's so fascinating to look at these guys that have these heinous, hate-filled points of view, and they must at some level know that because they go and do like these secret accounts or mm-hmm, they spin mm-hmm. things in ways that I don't know. It's just so fascinating. But there is this need to like perpetuate hatred, but in a yeah uh, self-preservation um, way. Like it's linked mm-hmm. to self-preservation uh, or not actually, but this idea of it. And yeah, we're, we're going to talk about there's all something of this and just, yeah, all that's in there. And, and I see that with this email too, that the way that a lot of evangelical people conduct themselves is through this fear mm-hmm. of self-preservation. That's not grounded in really anything. <laughs> Yeah, there's nothing being attacked by the, and we just saw, you know, there was those protests in Colorado around the shooting for at um, focus on the family and mm-hmm. their uh, masthead, their uh, lo- their whatever the sign outside got spray painted and vandalized, saying like the blood is on your hands, and they tried to cover it up with plastic bags and whatever. But the conversation should be had. I would, you would, I don't know. I would hope that they would walk out and be like, let's have this conversation because this is a tragedy. Yeah. And if we are in any, even if it's a New- microscopic percentage implicit in this, we need to have a conversation about it. Yeah. That's what you would hope would be the case. But it seems to be the other way where immediately yeah. there was people coming out and just trouncing on bad theology around victims. Victim shaming people who have lost their lives. Just, it just makes me feel irate. Yeah. So to the listener, I'm so sorry. I can't imagine, but I lament with you as much as I can. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Amen. And the reason I, I wanted to bring, uh, that email here is because of the interview we're about to have, because I think there are other things going on in evangelicalism than, just the theology. And our guest um, is a psychologist who is going to argue that most of the way evangelicalism thinks and conducts itself is based on psychology rather than theology. And um, it is totally fascinating. But one thing we don't get to in the interview is the sexual ethics part that's really great in the book. So um, to you... So we'll link the book... Yes, 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 yes. Um, anyway, really excited about uh, Dave Verhagen. 
He is um, somebody that go, goes to the, the church I'm at in Tennessee and who founded, I kind of stumble through it, but he founded like this pretty remarkable and large um, practice uh, in uh, in around Nashville that's fairly significant. And he's done some like lots of writing and lots of professoring and lots of speaking. And so he, he underplays all of that, but... Um, it's been great to get to know him. And then when he wrote this book called How White Evangelicals Think, I was in. And the interview does not disappoint. He is, he is great, and we hope you enjoy it. Hey, everybody. Man, I got to tell you, today I am excited, as opposed to other days. Today I'm really excited <laughs> because my worlds are colliding. On the podcast. Now, this happens whenever Susie Lind is on, but today it's happening because my friend Dave Verhagen is here. Dave is the, first of all, you to, to know Dave. So Dave goes to the church and has gone to the church way before I ever got there. The so church. The church, the one church <laughs> in Nashville. Um, and uh, Dave and Ellen are a couple we've gotten to get to know. And that's one thing I definitely noticed when I was visiting you is that driving around, I was like, well, there's no churches around here. Yeah, yeah. that's right. If, that's right. If there's anything that, that Nashville needs, it's more churches. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes. Bars and churches are, are really, they serve the same purpose. Um, but one of the things, that's just a hot take we're going to let slide. One of the things <laughs> that, that Dave and Ellen, so Ellen revolutionized our community no, I kid you not. This is not an exaggeration. When we were in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount and Ellen raised her hand and just asked a question right in the middle of a sermon. And that unleashed, we, we now like spend loads of time uh, answering text questions and people raising their hand in the middle of church and it's awesome. Uh, so that was Ellen's contribution, although she has way more to offer than that. Dave, however... <laughs> is the founder and uh, a practicing psychologist at a pretty large um, group um, facility. No, not a facility, but a group practice. Yes. Um, in Nashville. And, um, and has written some books. And, and he, so I got a couple of chapters of a book he'd written a couple of years ago that were amazing. But then he wrote a book called... <laughs> How white evangelicals think, <laughs> and, <laughs> and um, I got a I got my hands on a copy of that sucker and was like, oh wow, there's a lot to talk about. So, this is my friend Dave. Dave, say hello to everybody. Hey everybody, and hey Mike Erie. Hey, <laughs> and um, hey Tim Staff. Yes, oh, thank you. Yes, or as Seth Erie <laughs> calls him Tim Staff. Tim Staffer. Tim Staff. Um, so so Dave. You are you are white, are you I not? I am. I am very white. I'm I'm among the whitest people I've ever met. <laughs> and you are an evangelical, are you not? Uh, I would say, yeah. I think I I don't. You know, part of part of the wrestling with this is, what does that mean now? I mean, yes. So I will say historically, I have been. I think uh, I'm still at the core with faith. But I don't know how much I would embrace that term anymore. But yeah, right. so so to, for shorthand, let's say yes. Okay, because where I'm going with this is as a white evangelical, 
you already know how white evangelicals think, right? Yeah. Why would you, why, why Dave, (laughs) would you write a book such as this? No, I'm in all seriousness, like the way that you enter into the book and the conversation, like that it, that it started with you. I'd love to hear a little bit. I'd love to hear you talk about the genesis of this. Yeah, I'd love to tell you because I, um, I really got going with this out of a place of genuine confusion. Mm. I, it was just baffling. So I am a guy who grew up in the evangelical world. Uh, in college, I was involved in campus ministry. In graduate school, I was doing volunteer staff for a campus ministry. Uh, post-grad school, I was involved in you know a big church with Sunday school and being on the elder board. And wow. uh, I wrote a couple of Christian books and uh, was at adjunct faculty for seminary and conference speaker, the whole deal. So very immersed in, not peripherally, just very immersed in my life and, um, and cruising along. And then in recent years, I have been just baffled. And Mm -hmm. the story that I opened the book with is the one that I think helps me make sense of this uh, about Mm -hmm. why I got into it. Um, One time I had to speak at a conference in Roanoke Rapids. I was, living in Chapel Hill, and I was going to go to Roanoke Rapids for this conference. And so this was way before cell phones and GPS. So you take the map and you lay it out on the table. And I mapped out Chapel Hill to Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina. And I'm like, okay, I'll leave a little early, drive leisurely there. Once I get there, I'll figure out where the conference center is. I drove to Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, and find out there is no conference center there, that the conference is Roanoke Rapids, Virginia. So now I'm a couple hundred miles away. And so the the point of that story is I set out for something that had one name that I thought this was my destination, and I ended up there, and it was had the same name, but it was far from where I thought I was going or where I needed to be. And so the same thing with evangelical in your first question, that's what puzzled why I'm still puzzling. I, I'd made a soft commitment to myself that by the time the book came out, I could answer the question of whether I'm, I'm an evangelical or not. Yeah. And I don't know because where I thought evangelicalism was and what it was about is not where it feels like it is now. And so mm. I felt like I, I was committed to this thing that then slipped out from under me. So yeah. then it it became a question of, did it change? Was it there all along and I missed it? Yeah. What? And then if we're thinking, well, evangelicalism should be characterized by all the things that we've, we've kind of grown up in of uh, concern for the poor and the oppressed, uh, being um, more interested in other people than ourselves, being people of grace and mercy, and that's not what this is, Mm -hmm. then how did this happen? And so I started posing questions to myself Mm. of, uh, and they were just literally questions I needed answers to. Why are uh, evangelicals so fearful? First of all, Mm. are they? And Mm. then why are they? Mm. Why do they seem, at least on the big picture scale, so self-interested and all about power when they're supposed to be other interested and all about giving away power? Uh, Why do they subscribe to conspiracy theories um, more than other groups? Why do they deny the the reality of 
systemic racism and even mm-hmm. individual racism. And in, in so, I, I really had all these questions that I was wrestling with. And I thought the thing I have to offer this is I'm a psychologist. I'm a good consumer of psychological research. And so let me pose the question and then begin to answer it with research and expert interviews. And so that was the beginning of the book. It started mm-hmm. about four or five years ago. And um, it it went through a number of evolutions in terms of what was included and what wasn't included. Yeah. But I really felt like once I got to a place where I could answer some of those questions in a satisfactory way, then I had a book. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's where we landed. Mm-hmm. And you're very careful to disclaim we're not speaking here about every white evangelical, right? Nor are we, you know, um, uh, trying to play on stereotypes or anything like that. We're trying to listen to what what it is the data and researcher are telling us, um, right? Go, anytime go you talk about a larger, anytime you talk about a larger group, it's not going to be true of everybody. Yeah, and so this isn't true of every individual for sure. And it might not be true of certain pockets or churches um, mm-hmm. characteristically. The other point that I want to make related to that is that it's not my intention to be a flamethrower or a bomb dropper here. It's not my intention to tear something down. It's my intention to understand it well and hopefully bring about something good. Ultimately, mm-hmm. uh, I told a story in the introduction that I was in Bermuda and we were, we were going to spend a day at the beach and before we got there, there was this massive sandcastle that had moats and walls and turrets, and it was sprawling. It was huge. And these three Bermudan boys came running up, and they started looking at the castle, and one of them immediately started kicking the walls down. And the other two stopped him and said, no, let's not tear down, let's build. And I always remembered that. It's like, that's, it's easy. There's an impulse to tear down. Mm-hmm. And it's there's a certain satisfaction in it but there's also greater importance in building it's a more of a creative act and so i'm not coming to tear down i'm coming ultimately ultimately even though it might be a little wounding um, <laughs> my my goal is is to is to build yeah and why white evangelicals as opposed to liberals or mainliners or atheists or whatever because I can imagine, right. I can imagine, you know, that that being some potential like, hey, why are you single? Why 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 are you singling us out? We're already a persecuted, you know, people group. <laughs> yeah. aren't, aren't we though? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I will say, in full disclosure, I am what I call a pathological moderate. So I am moderate in most all things. In fact, I think I am a, a spiritual Canadian. I, I think that <laughs> that I was supposed to have, I was supposed to have been born in Canada, and and I just it just I just missed by a few you know like a thousand mm-hmm, miles or so. Mm-hmm, and um, so I'm I'm a pretty moderate guy, and I can see problematically. I can see issues with. Uh, the far right and the far left. Um, personally, I I personally have voted for both Republican and Democratic candidates on all levels. Uh, I am not a by any means a dyed in the wool conservative, nor am I a self described liberal. But 
evangelicalism is now characterized by conservative white Christians. Mm. And so that's my tribe, as it were. Yeah. And so change really begins at home. It's like I I I I could write a book talking about some problems with, you know, the far left, mm. but that they're not my people. Yeah. Uh, in that in that sense. Yep. My yep. people are are now people that are um, immersed in republicanism. They are white conservative Christians, and so to me that was that was the concern: is why is this group tribe uh, collective mm-hmm. uh, thinking and behaving this way? That was yeah. what my concern is. It's yeah. not to tear them down or to say that they're um, bad or worse than others. It's really that there's some problems that we need to look at at home. Yeah. And and one of the points you make is you know unless something is truly faced, it can't be dealt with. Right. Um, when it, so so here's like I don't know what page it was. It was very early in the book. This was a doozy. The worldview of white evangelicals is more bound up in their psychology than in their theology. Oh. Oh snap. <laughs> Did that wound you, Mike Erie? Well, I tell you what, right now, for, first of all, yeah, the whole book wounded me because I <laughs> I saw myself in many of these things that you described for sure. But um, I thought that was an interesting claim uh, epistemologically because I, I think the majority of our tribe would say, hey, we're people of the book. We're people of the Bible. We are people who um, hold the Bible to be inerrant, infallible, inspired, and this is where we get our ideas, our ideas about the world and how we act in the world. And you're, um, you're very much calling that into question. And so, uh, and then you apply that lens into like race and sex and nationalism and all the massive, massive conspiracy theories. Uh, and so I'd love to talk just a little bit about are conservatives and liberals born or made? Um, you spend some time talking about how there are certain clusters of characteristics that are identified early that can... Um, that, that at times can uh, at least correlate to later political views. I'd love to hear just a little bit more about that. And this yes. is before we know any theology. So, so this is part of the way that you make this argument is this is, this is happening before we've ever arrived at a Bible. Yes. And so I don't back down from that claim. I do think that most of this has to do at least as a starting point with psychology and our our way of seeing the world through our own lens and perception and even though we like to think of ourselves as being people that have this sort of purity of perception and purity of (laughs) theology we i mean just life tells us that isn't true we i'll give you an example using you you're doing a series <laughs> <laughs> no, I, wow. I, I mean this, yeah it's a good thing mike Gary. Oh, okay. uh, I, I, you're doing a series on on um revelation that really inverts the whole book but has integrity in terms of its interpretation and you mm. go to great lengths to show sort of the old testament um leadings into how you are interpreting revelation as a book 
that is meant to be hopeful rather than to make people scared. Mm -hmm. But I grew up and you grew up in a world where we saw a thief in the night and these movies yeah. that were all yeah. about the rapture and two yeah. people are in a car and one wrecks uh, <laughs> the car wrecks because the person's raptured. You know, it, the it's inescapable mm. that our own filters influence what information we take in, how we make sense of it. That doesn't mean that truth can't be truth. It doesn't mean that things can't be real. It doesn't right. negate the Christian faith. Yeah. But we have to begin with this idea that we there's so many layers of psychology that get us to this point. We have how we how we perceive things from our senses, mm -hmm. our wiring, our temperament, how that temperament leads to long-term traits of personality, how that personality leads to certain ways of seeing ourselves and others that we'll call schemas. And those layers influence do we begin to see God as a, a, a not even mentioning life experiences, right? Mm. But then the life experiences, do we see God as predominantly loving and and gracious and merciful? Do we see God as a God of wrath? Mm. Do we see, how do we see each other in the context of the kingdom of God? Mm -hmm. It's all there. So the answer to the second part of your question, are conservatives and liberals made were born the answer is yes and yes mm -hmm. and what i mean by that is there are certain traits that we know temperamentally that lead children to become if a, if a child has certain traits in their temperament they're more prone to become a conservative mm -hmm. or a liberal and those traits have to do with uh their need for order and sameness their openness to new experiences their, uh, how conscientious they are in terms of meticulousness and detail-oriented, mm. and those things sort of put people on a trajectory. Mm. Is it possible that those traits that would normally predispose somebody to be liberally minded might end up with someone being conservative? Yes, it is, because they have life experiences, they have influences, they have a family, they have friends, they have college experiences and so on that might influence that. But there's sort of a... a, a a predisposition in a direction mm. uh, that goes from that. So, yes, it is both. We 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 are wired in a way that leans us in a direction. Mm -hmm. We have certain family and social contexts that also lean us in a direction. Often, those things line up because cons conservatives behave in ways and, and think in ways that um, beget conservative thought, mm -hmm. and they also tend to have genetically transmitted characteristics to their offspring that predispose them to be more conservative. Mm. Same thing with being liberal. Mm. Uh, so again, I just want to emphasize none of this negates faith or negates something being true or not true, but it isn't that we have this purity of, of, and, and, and that we see everything as it is. Mm. We see things through layers of, life experiences and temperament and personality. Yeah. So how does that apply to groups? Uh, one of the things you talk about in the book is, is the relationship between fear and evangelicals. And um, I'd love just a, a kind of a synopsis of your research. Are evangelicals typically more fearful than folks in the general population? And, and if so, why do you think that's the case? 
The answer, the short answer is yes. The longer answer is it depends on what you're talking about being mm. fearful of. Mm. So the group socializes you to what you're fearful of. So yeah, any liberals, group does. Any group does. So okay. the group tells you what to be fearful of mm. and what to not be fearful of. I'll give you an example of that in a minute. But there, because now, as a general rule, cons, uh, evangelicalism is characterized by republicanism, conservative um politics mm -hmm. first white identity second and then theology third if we look at the research that's really sort of the the rank order of what thing how things sort of progress wow then and that's an order then, of emphasis priority value right right, right. ryan Berge, uh who mm -hmm. is a pastor in the baptist church mm -hmm. um, his research says look evangelicals are Republicans first, white second, and then evangelical third. Yeah, just the way Jesus um, intended. Just the way, right? Yeah. And that that's not always been the case, but that's that's where mm. we are. Mm. So, within that, we if we say that's the predominant tone of white evangelicalism now is conservative-minded yeah. people. Yeah, and again, we're not saying conservative is bad. We're just saying conservative-minded people. Conservative-minded people tend to be more fearful about certain kinds of things. They're fearful about um, things that are different than they are, people that are different than they are. They are more fearful of things that don't fit into conventional expectations. Mm -hmm. They're more fearful of things that threaten status. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're more fearful of those things. And we've got tons of research that backs it up study after study there's occasional stray study that will say something different but overall if you look at the sort of the weight of all that conservatives tend to be more fearful about those kinds of things now what's interesting is you wouldn't think that was true during the COVID era because mm. the evangelicals were the ones that was like let's pack a thousand people into a small space and have a worship service without masks right because um, we're people sort of, of faith and fear people of faith and you're not going to keep us from congregating and you're not going to yeah. and we're not going to be afraid of this and right because the group was saying don't be afraid of that hmm. and also be more afraid of government intrusion and be more afraid of the government being in control of religious assembly um and so that's the difference is that the group tells you what to be afraid of and that's true on on all places of the conservative liberal spectrum mm -hmm. so by and large there's a greater degree of anxiety about the future uh about the state of things is there generally more pessimism about how things are going in the world yes yes because by nature a conservative wants things to be conserved some of that is driven again we a conservative might say I believe that because I have this view of government that is intellectually conceived. Yeah. But what I would say is maybe, but also maybe that you have a personality that desires things to remain the same mm. and that when things change from the tradition, from the, the expectation, it makes you very uncomfortable. Mm. And so your your need is to is to keep things 
conserved and keep things the same mm. and anything that sort of comes in uh, to uh, be an affront to that is something that is uh, not only makes me uncomfortable but something to be opposed mm. Mm. how does fear re- right well you right, just see Timothy? that too with the confrontation to any any like feminist movement or any um you know social justice movement in general it seems like when it comes to race or gender you just see the immediate clamp down and then it's always fear driven so i mean you just any i'm just sitting here while you guys are talking and and like hopscotching backwards in history and it's not a fun it's not a fun (laughs) journey the group that dictates the trickle down makes a lot of sense obviously you can see like the what you just described how a group can help orient um, a conservative ideal base and you can see how where the fear plays in right you the the example of the government overreach is a great example that's a great where it just example. seemed asinine but hey there was still fear involved in the courage of standing up against a disease it was still a fear-driven thing what i don't know if this is in the book or not but is does is there a what dictates the group the who molds the group ideology like the like the the top of that puzzle that dictates the fear of the individuals at the bottom like is there a because the fear motivator on the bottom level makes a lot of sense um but it seems like the motives on the top level would be a little different are they or mm. does yeah, that question make question. sense yeah, yeah it makes totally a lot of sense. Sense. Yeah, probably so, probably the best question that's been asked is what he's saying i would say the best probably, question yeah. is ever been asked not only on this podcast but But any any. podcast ever (laughs) yes the best you have the greatest questions the best questions thank you i feel we're going to talk about narcissism in a minute yeah he deals with narcissists all day so he understands (laughs) so the way i would go about that is that conservatives which again i'm not necessarily saying evangel- white evangelicals and conservatives are synonymous, but right. I'm saying pretty close. Yeah. They're There's very little daylight. Yeah, Right. It's very little daylight between these things. And so conservatives have a need to conserve things traditionally, mostly because it keeps them feeling safe. And in our culture, it keeps them in charge. And so if if you're in charge, then you're safe because you call the shots. And so we didn't see as much of this prior to certainly not the 1980s in the same way and certainly not in the last five or six years in the same way because you didn't have to. You know, there was there was sort of a solid understanding that white Christian folk um, are are the dominant leaders and shapers in the culture and as that's been questioned then you see all this stuff kind of rearing up and so what we're seeing is in conservative movements there is a clear movement culturally and as a nation where demographically it's changing where uh there are challenges to the authority of christians and white people and white christians and so that begins to dictate from top down Mm -hmm. the the leaders have a vested interest in preserving their role and their 
um, th their positions of power and authority. And they might cry um, victim, but they're really what's driving that is a need to not be in a subordinate role or not lose their place at the head of the table. Yeah. Mm. You, you kind of talk about how evangelicals tell themselves a story out, out yeah. of the fear, out of the anxiety. And um, again, quoting quotes I wrote down, uh, we tell ourselves a bad story that's <laughs> self-centered and full of fear and hostility. It's a story opposite of the good story that we're called to inhabit. <laughs> and and one of the parts of this story that we tell ourselves is the entitlement story, which totally relates to what you were just talking about, the staying in power and the and the belonging in power. And you collect the entitlement story to narcissism, um, not just at an individual level, but collectively. Which is so? Could you differentiate a little bit between the two? I think most of us are familiar a little bit with you know individual narcissism but start there if you would and then talk about how that gets blown up into groups i'm really glad you asked that because if there is one main point of the book or organizing thesis of the book it is that white evangelicalism has been infected with what we're going to call collective narcissism so how does that distinctive from individual narcissism so let me let me give you three points along uh along a scale and they're slightly different but they're all overlapping the first is just narcissistic traits all of us all of us have some degree of narcissism you have to in order to survive when you're an mm -hmm. infant and a toddler you have to be all about yourself and your needs mm -hmm. and hopefully there's a point in time where you progress past that and you have the capacity where you feel um safe and well enough mm -hmm. to focus on other people but we're all along a continuum of that as we develop that doesn't necessarily mean someone has a diagnosable condition that's just a continuum of very little narcissism to a lot when it gets to be a whole lot of narcissism and we would characterize that as entitlement uh, looking at people as objects um, lack of empathy self-centeredness those kinds of traits when it gets to the point where it is severe enough that it interferes with a person's functioning in their ability to have relationships in their ability to hold a job in their ability to stay out of trouble and so on then it can be diagnosed as a narcissistic personality disorder mm. and that is a diagnosable condition it's a very difficult condition to treat it's a very difficult condition to to be in any kind of relationship with and there is some research that the the church not just the evangelical church but the church writ large draws more narcissists and people that would even qualify as narcissistic personalities and mike i exempt you from this comment but that the rates among people that are <laughs> in in pastoral teaching roles are often that's even higher often oh yeah no i i I don't exempt myself from that. Absolutely. Mike did a whole series on it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, okay. yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> been in that. Yes. I agree and exempt myself in to that generalization. I resemble oh. that remark. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <Hey>. Yes. In recovery, <laughs> okay. but nevertheless. <laughs> well, good. Yeah. 
a recovering narcissist. I, and, you know, again, we're all somewhere along that continuum. But there is also a trait. So when, when I was trying to understand this, like what is happening with this group, this bigger group, I first began thinking about, well, it, it seems very narcissistic. How do we understand that as a group? Mm-hmm. Well, is is it best to think of it as a narcissistic family? Because there's some mm-hmm. research and study and practice on narcissistic families that are organized around narcissism. Um, well, that wasn't quite it. And then I ran across this idea called collective narcissism. And the beginning of collective narcissism, believe it or not, it's, it's interesting we're talking about this during the World Cup because the beginning of the study of collective narcissism wow. Wow. was around something that was called football or soccer hooliganism, mm. where the fans of one team would become so rabid and committed to that fandom that they would literally fight, attack, and riot against mm. members of the other team's fans. Yeah. And this happened so often in Europe and in other countries that they had to design stadiums differently, design parking lots differently, build security differently. And so the study of this, the soccer hooliganism, which I love that word, by the way, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, really they found that the underlying mechanism is something that's called collective narcissism, which is the best simple definition is in group love without group hate. In other mm. words, in-group love associated with out-group, meaning not in the group hate. Yep. Yep. And what that means is we think our group is special. Mm-hmm. We think our group is entitled to special treatment mm-hmm. because we're special. And we also think that other people disrespect us That's right. and don't see it that way. And so consequently, we are not only right, but we are almost obligated to be angry and hateful and even attacking of those people. And mm-hmm. so we see this. It's a in, moral imperative. Um, it's almost a moral imperative. Yeah. And so it becomes very much a us and them. Our group is good and special and entitled, and they are the enemy that must be opposed and attacked because they don't see us as special. Now, mm. I'm going to leap ahead a little bit. That collective narcissism not only characterizes what I think is the problem with white evangelicalism now, but it is really the root of the big conversation right now about Christian nationalism. Mm -hmm. Christian nationalism is at its root, the intellectual cover for collective narcissism. It is the, it is the nicing up and the theological cover and the intellectual cover for this more ugly thing. And so that discussion is really, as a psychologist, what I see, that's the sociology of it, the Christian nationalism. Mm -hmm. But the psychology of it is this dynamic that's happening that's driving people to associate with a group that makes them feel special and that the group then is infused with this sense of being special and entitled. And characteristically, it is also angry and um hostile toward people who don't view them that way and that's where (laughs) fear would fit in right is that is that the collective narcissism is a defense is well i'm asking is it a defense against the the uh, anxiety in the system Uh, or okay yeah it's like yeah you're 
you are opposing us now. So again, going back historically, when white male Christians were in charge of everything, and no one really had the wherewithal to question that, then we could be as pleasant as we needed to be. And as we, so on the surface, the, the culture that we grew up in, in evangelicalism was, was a pretty pleasant culture. Mm -hmm. It was only when it became, when the dynamic culturally shifted toward, oh, white people are going to be in the minority. That's so big. That's so huge. Yeah. In 2045, we're going to be the minority and Mm. uh, Christian um, thought is being challenged Mm. and we're seeing some of the the problems in it. And when all that's being challenged, then all the stuff that was kind of under the rock to begin with then starts coming out and it comes out with this ferocity that for many of us was just like, what is happening? This is not the same group, Mm -mm, but mm -mm. it is. That has so much explanatory power. That, Mm -hmm. that whole, that whole like couple of paragraphs you just said, I mean, I'm sitting here going, well, yeah, there's, there, there's race, there's immigration, there's women's issues, there's sexuality issues and how we treat gender minorities. I mean, literally everything flows. So you have this core of fear in reaction to the fear. You have this collective sense of entitlement that we would say collective narcissism that, that justifies hostility or violence or whatever abuse of the out group. And, um, and that's only happened, and I'm just repeating what you're saying because I just <laughs> want to get it in there. It, it's been there all along, but we've never had to be mean about it because we've always been the cultural arbiters of power. Yeah, those doors were closed pretty tight when things were comfortable. Was it comfortable for people of color or for women or anyone else that was told to be in there, stay in their lane? I'm so curious. The psychology part of it's so interesting because... There, so there was a day. viral video going around of, um, you know, churches are getting ready for their giant Christmas spectacles. And there was a viral video of a church that had drummers like on machines floating through the air playing their drums. <laughs> and it was like this ridiculously expensive program that they were putting together for their. And someone said something like, imagine the imagine the God that was born, you know, in a barn or whatever, like just kind of playing the, being so excited and so proud of the, you know, multi-million dollar Christmas presentation you put on. And it made me start thinking about identity and our identity as not evangelicals, but just as people of a kingdom that believe that Jesus is who he says he was. And everything that you guys Mm. have been talking about is all misidentity issues and then being like, angry or scared that someone's attacking your misidentity that you've taken on as the true identity. And I think that stuff's really interesting because at the beginning you said, I don't want to like, I don't want to tear it all down. I want to like, I can't remember exactly how you put it, but not tear Mm -hmm. it down, but kind of like, you know, to build, to build it, fix it. Or, and so there's always a conversation going on between whether or not this is salvageable or or whether or not mm-hmm. we just kind of do our own thing and then within that you know when you when i with the question that i asked earlier and it basically broke down to just it's power people are protecting power and we don't want to lose power and that's such a is that such a predictable and boring answer and it's sad right because it's like that's all mm-hmm. that we are is people who are afraid to lose power in every different dynamic and it's such a disappointing underlying issue 
Um, but that is dying out. We see that statistically, right? That that power is waning. So it doesn't need to be, I, I just keep oscillating between, is it worth it to try to be a part of this system that is so heinous at this point with the way it's operating in a lot of ways, but it is dying. And, or at least that part of it is kind of losing its gusto. So do you just let the fire burn itself out? Do you throw fuel on the fire? Do you just move to another neighborhood? <laughs> um, but then like psychologically, the people that have that are being formed by by this group system that is changing the identity of what it means to be a Christ follower. And it has become this thing in the Christmas example is really cheesy, but I, it's just what provoked this thought in me in the first place was how do we, so much of the threat is against a misunderstood identity. How would mm-hmm. you help somebody in their narcissism and in their fear and narcissism about an identity that's not true or real discover their true identity Oh, that's beneath a great question. That. We'll end. We'll end on that one, Timothy. That's so good. That's so good. Yeah, and it's loaded. There's a lot of angles on that. So let me go back to the place where you started with that question, and and I'm going to make a statement that I I hope I don't regret, but I'm going to say this. <laughs> I, I think <laughs> I'm not talking about an individual church, but I think the American fascination and obsession with mega church mm-hmm. and bigger is better is narcissism a go-go yeah. i mm-hmm. think it is it just by itself it's the the bigger is better uh the more people we can kind of uh count the bigger the productions are that is that is a an expression of narcissism it is now i think there are churches that are big churches that have lots of integrity. I think there are churches that put on big shows that have, so I'm not talking about at the individual level, but I am saying on that big level, the, the way I would answer this, and I'd be curious to get your thought too, Mike, is if we look at just on a social and sociological level about evangelicalism, Mm -hmm. we're really talking about, about an 80, 20 split. And what that means is about 80% of people who now call themselves evangelical would be basically uh, conservative Republicans who <coughs> take on the the term evangelical, mm. who, who, who own that term. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so within that, there's still 20% of people that would be, I would say, closer to us where we would be uh, people very interested in a faith that is other-centered, that is really pushing back on our narcissistic tendencies, that's really pushing back on our desires for power and control, that really wants to serve the poor and the oppressed, who wants to to think well about issues of race and gender and all of it. And so – that's embedded in that same group so we've got 20 percent. well i think if if you look at how i think god operates sometimes he doesn't necessarily need the big majority and the masses and the mega church Mm. he needs the faithful 
within that. And I'm not trying to make the claim that the people in the 80% are not Christians. I'm not making that statement. I'm just saying there is a 20% within that that thinks differently. Yeah, I would argue that thinks closer to historical faith. And that may be enough. It isn't necessarily enough to flip the whole thing, meaning that now evangelical is back to this yeah. really healthy, good place. But I think my my mind has shifted more to let's let's think of this with the smaller group being what is embodying and living out more authentic faith and let's acknowledge that this 80 percent is more of a um culturally determined phenomenon mm. Mm. Um, and the hard now, work's gonna now, be what, uh, oh i'm sorry no and and whether that means that the 20 create separation semantically about calling themselves an evangelical or not i don't know yeah. but but to me it is it, it is probably more we're probably going to get more traction focusing on the people that are trying to to remain faithful and trying to be people of faith and wrestling with what it means to be evangelical but are seeing things very different than 80 percent of their brothers and sisters mm, yeah oh it's so good dave and the hard work i'm sorry i was almost interrupted you there or i did the hard work is going to be, if you're a part of the 20%, how do you keep from being a collective, growing into collective narcissism against the 80%, right? Because it's That's the right. same, well, they don't appreciate us. We're the true believers. I mean, it's the same dynamic yeah. played out over yeah. and over and over. And right. so I love I love the, that so much of Jesus is talking about growth in the kingdom was like images of of smallness and hiddenness and weakness. That's how the kingdom comes. And so it's incumbent upon that 20% to not, you know, to resist the collective narcissism that could easily uh, portray it, you know, or characterize it. So that's so good, Dave. Um, obviously we're gonna link the book, it's fantastic. Um, do you have social media? Are you on social media at all? If people wanna check you out? Yeah, so I've decided this is this is my simple way of thinking about social media. <laughs> Facebook is for family pictures and vacations. Mm. Instagram is for pretty pictures. And Twitter is where we can have this kind of hashing mm. it out. I, I try not to bleed these things. So there are people who are only uh, friends on Facebook that don't even know that this book is out, for mm. example. Mm -hmm. And Instagram, mm -hmm. I don't make any, I just, I just post pretty pictures. So Twitter would be, if you want to follow me, it would be uh, at D-A Verhagen, uh, V-E-R-H-A-A-G-E-N, and you can post that. But um, that's where I'd love for people to follow me on that. And um, I really am grateful that you guys uh, had me on. I, it really means a lot to be able to share these ideas. If you want a uh, podcast psychologist to be like the, the yes, house psychologist, the resident, the resident psychologist. I <laughs> love right. it. I'm your resident psychologist. Yeah, <laughs> See, we should so, probably uh, have one of those. Oh, Dave, listen. Yeah, I it, mean, all podcasts need a resident, a resident psychologist. <laughs> Boy, isn't I mean, isn't a podcast itself an expression of narcissism? 
Um, you know, our words, our words are so important. We we have to, you know. So it's just, you know. Anyway, but I I, I am so grateful, Dave. I mean, you and, and Ellen are the best, and um, it's great to. I think one of the ways that I rate church health um, is how many psychiatrists, psychologists, and people in recovery are there in the congregation, and so. It, in our case, we're we're pretty safe. <laughs> yeah. It's a bunch of jack. You got it nailed books. down. Um, anyway, man, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for your time today. You're the best. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Tim. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this conversation. Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash Voxology. You can also join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials. Facebook.com backslash Voxology podcast and on Instagram at Voxology. Thank you Thank you, thank you for walking the long road with us.